hey, we're in Luke chapter 22. I wanted to say how great it is to be here with you guys. It is honestly, it, it's just such a blessing for Susie and I to see Crosspoint doing so, so well. I mean, we're heading out to a mission trip on Friday. You have other things going on. I heard great reports about a missionary being in your pulpit just recently. Uh, Bruce and Jim and I, we talk all the time. I hear great stories. They talk about you behind your back incessantly, and it's all good. It really, really is uh, a joy to be here. You know, so much of who I am in the ministry was formed here, hanging out with you, doing ministry with you. Uh, it's so true. I find myself 45 minutes north of downtown Seattle now, pastoring in a quaint forest <laughs> where in order to get to the closest Starbucks, I need to pack a lunch. <laughs> you are on 11 acres out there surrounded by trees and underbrush. You can see nothing uh, from the property except an occasional deer that will come onto the property. Totally crazy. Hanging out with farmers and businessmen and everybody in between. Just a, it's a wonderful, great, amazing church. And we're hoping, honestly, for running water to make its way out there. Um, we're, uh, my friend, my friends Russ and Denise Murdoch came up to see me, see us this past summer because they love us. And uh, they, they nicknamed Snohomish, Slowhomish. And there's a reason for that. You guys are going through the story. I love when we pause as a church or a small group or anything in between. We just stop and we do these mac macro views, right? And we just kind of, okay, wow. Because sometimes you get in the Word and it's wonderful, it's beautiful, right? You get into the forest, you know, and you're, you have the trees so close up against you that it's you kind of lose touch of the whole view of Scripture. And, of course, the story does that so well. Bruce was very specific with my assignment. I'm not even kidding. He said, you're to preach on a 12-hour window of time. And you have it in your bulletin as the dark hours here. Uh, these are the final 12 hours of our Lord's earthly life, from the garden to the cross. And can we not just say here right out of the gate, this is, this is a weighty topic. And so we'll approach it in that light. And uh, could you join me in standing as we look at our text? Luke chapter 22. We'll begin in verse 39. We'll be throughout all of the Gospels this morning, but we'll really focus on Luke's account Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out, this is Christ, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Verse 51. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. And our Father, we recognize that what we have before us is your word. It's really kind of unbelievable that you would write us a book. But we have it, and we recognize that it is you speaking to us. So would you allow your word to penetrate our hearts in such a way that it causes us to see you more clearly today? And in seeing you more clearly, would we come to love you more and be more committed to you? I know that in a crowd this size, many come here discouraged, suffering a great, great trial. And of course, we don't know because we're so good at smiling. But you know. Would you allow even what we're talking about this morning to affect them in such a way that they do see you more clearly? The mist fades away. And that they recognize that the answer to the question they're asking is you. The solution to the difficulty they face is you. And I pray that all of us, all of us would hang on to that this morning as we process what our Lord goes through. Thank you for including it in the text. And we pray all this because of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we'll just walk through this account together. We'll, kinda, we'll go slow. I love second-hour services at church because you don't have a third service, right? So we can just take our time. Um, the Seahawks have already kicked off, so there's no need to run home and watch that. I know many of you would otherwise, right? Please do not tell me the score, though. This is what we call at our church DVR Sunday, where one-third of our congregation stays home. And I'm not making that up when the Seahawks play. But we love those sinners <laughs> very much. And you know, it dawns on me as I say those words, you have a live feed going on right now. And that was probably, <laughs> probably not my best play. But nonetheless, let's just take our time and walk through this amazing account. It truly is amazing. Our Lord suffered such agony during these 12 hours, and the gospel writers include it, and so we should wrestle with it. We should come to terms with it. And, I, and, and what I've done is I've put together an interrogative, it's not novel at all, that'll kind of guide our thinking this morning, and here it is. What brought Christ to the point where there in the garden he sweated blood? What could be so significant where he would have grief to the point where blood would come out of his pores. 
And in answering that question, we'll walk with Christ through these final hours leading up uh, to uh, Him being nailed on the cross, of course. Isaiah prophesied that our Lord would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and He was. His entire time during His public ministry, He had many, many sorrows, many times of grief. Isaiah talks about it in 53, chapter 53, verse 3 of his prophecy, where he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Sorrow and grief followed our Lord all the days of his life. But the absolute height of that sorrow, that grief, would be here in our text this morning. It, honestly, the sorrow that our Lord experiences here in the garden was so intense it nearly killed him. And honestly, that's simply put, but that's a great way to see what's going on. Now, there's an argument from syntax that he actually did not sweat blood. We read in Luke's account, verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops like great drops of blood. And the argument is he didn't sweat blood, but what he sweated was like blood. And that's a good argument, actually. It does say in the text that it was like blood, um, which causes us to ponder it a little bit. Well, then what was it? If Luke wanted us to get a grasp as to perhaps the amount of sweat or the size of the drops of sweat coming from his pores, perhaps he would have chosen that it was like rain. But he doesn't. He chooses blood as a descriptive word, so that be, no doubt because it wasn't so much the size as it was the color that was of issue. Luke is a physician. No one's there to test it. And so if he says it was reddish or like blood, chances are that what we're dealing with here is that Christ became so consumed with agony so overwrought with all of it that what was coming out of his pores and all of that agony was blood. It's significant. We need to see here that it's probably, to some degree, this anxiety that he has is beyond our comprehension. We're all struck by the scene, if you can picture it, here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So intense was the grief that God the Father sends an angel down from the heavenlies to comfort him, to be there by him. We read about that in verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. But I asked the question, what's, what, is, what is causing such grief? He was about to go through so much. Was it all of it? Was it perhaps just one part of it? And the Gospels record for us with intimate detail that Christ is going to suffer so much agony here, and it's important for us to know why. In nine hours, he'll be on the cross, and Mark records what is taking place here in the, in the garden is significant. He says in verse 33 of chapter 14, and he took with him Peter, James, and John. We know the story well. The inner circle goes with him first into the garden, and he began to be, and I'm quoting now, Mark, follow me on this not distressed or troubled, but greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. He says to his three friends, hey, pray with me. Uh, I'm 
so taken up right now, I don't know that I can do it. This is our Lord saying that. He's admitting to these guys that it's overcoming him. Verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible that this hour might pass from him. I mean, what we have here is the Lord Jesus Christ lying on the ground in the garden, crying out loud in agony over this struggle. The man of sorrows at his most sorrowful moment. So great is the stress here that blood begins to seep through his pores and it falls to the ground. There were a number of agonies that he, were, he was about to experience. Some he knew well, of course. And I want to discuss what it is that actually caused him to bleed from his pores. First, if you're taking notes there, let's discuss what it probably wasn't here. One, I don't think what caused him to bleed was his rejection of friends, although that must have absolutely broken his heart. We first see it with Judas. He had just received the ultimate rejection from him. They're at the Passover meal in the upper room. I don't know if you've ever had a good friend reject you, but it, it, it guts you. But we could not possibly begin to relate to what Christ is experiencing here because we can't love the way Christ loves. And he was so close to Judas. I think he loved Judas so much. I envision that he was very, very tight with Judas. They spent multiple dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of encounters over nearly three years alone in a group, being very transparent with one another, having deep moments and fun moments and everything in between. And he cares so much for Judas, and now Judas is going to turn on him. He's going to betray him. He had just finished washing Judas's feet here. I think it's reasonable to assume that they loved one another deeply, enjoyed one another's company very much. And honestly, there's no evidence that Judas would be the betrayer. The other disciples, when Christ pointed out that there, would, there was a betrayer among them, they all said, who, what? They were absolutely baffled by it. No one looked over at Judas and said, I've been wondering about you, actually. We do read of an account or two that causes us to be suspicious of Judas, but we also read into those accounts knowing that he would be the betrayer, the betrayer no doubt about it. And if that weren't enough, not only does Judas, Judas betray him, but every single solitary one of those disciples would pull to Judas. They're in the garden when the battalion would come and after Peter cut off the ears of that soldier, they all ran, scared, like scared deer through the olive trees. And so he would be apprehended. No one would be there with him. He would go into that campus all by himself. He would endure so much all by himself. Peter, around midnight, maybe 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, would follow close by. He would break his way into the campus grounds just so curious to what was to take place with his Savior, but he would go on to vehemently deny Christ three times. Christ would make eye contact with him afterwards. And honestly, as intense as all of this was, I don't believe this is what caused him to sweat blood. I also don't believe it would be the awful mocking and ridicule, although that must have been absolutely nearly unbearable. 
Consider that when Christ was crucified, all of the gospel writers say Christ was crucified, period. They don't give any commentary as to what that looked like. There were probably 30,000 people crucified at that time. It was a nasty thing. We'll talk about that here in a moment. And there are reasons why the details of of the crucifixion was omitted, but what is not omitted is the humiliation that he encounters before being crucified. The soldiers were about to do some things to Jesus that were absolutely unspeakable. It's awkward, actually, for me to ponder them even while speaking to you. Christ would become an absolute comic before these guys. The cruel games which the soldiers would go on to play at the hands of the soldiers have been well chronicled. It was the morning of Good Friday, maybe 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock a.m., as late as 7 o'clock. Pilate first has them whipped to the brink of death. We know that so well. The Romans were good at it. They would have doctors on the scene checking the pulse of the person that was receiving the lashings, making sure that he could withstand just a little bit more, and then maybe a little bit more. And they did this to Christ. They did it so well, but actually it was after that that things got really out of hand. You know the drill. Suspects are arrested. They're put into prison, and then the guards get bored. Mark tells us that in Mark chapter 15, verse 16, they called together the whole battalion. Some of your versions say all of the praetorian guard. In other words, whoever happened to be within earshot of the praetorian guard at this moment, they shouted to them and asked them to come and join the fun. And why would they need all of those soldiers? Maybe as many as 600 formed a battalion that would be on duty at any one time. No doubt not all of the 600 men were available, but maybe hundreds. Christ all by himself now. We have no evidence that anybody was there to help him, encourage him, pray for him. None. Zero. And what a laugh Jesus was. He was the village idiot before these people. This was the man that was causing so much trouble. This is the guy stirring up a revolution. Really? Claiming that he was the nation's true king. What a ridiculous, pathetic figure we have before us. The gospel writers lay it out so well, don't they? They put a robe on him and a crown of thorns on his head. But what else does a king have? Well, he has a scepter. So, We read in Matthew 27, they put a staff in his right hand. The staff was perhaps a reed, you know, maybe crooked, maybe a little bit flimsy, which was perfect, right? Just the touch to underline underline just how pathetic a figure Christ was as he was walking around that courtyard, hanging under the reed, so weak from the beating, maybe trying to lean on the reed, but it would bend and bow, and it's terrible. What else would they do in this evil pantomime? Well, we read in Mark 15, verse 18, they begin to salute him. Hail, king of Jews. Yelling at it. Yelling this rather. Yelling it right at his face, no doubt. You see the scene as a group of them are coming together, marching up and down in front of him, getting on their knees, paying him homage. Hail, hail, the king of the Jews. But then this too got old, got a little boring. Mark says they took the scepter. I always wonder, why did they take the scepter? Did Jesus drop it? Did he not go along with what they were saying? Maybe he refused to hang on to it. We don't know. 
We don't know, but we do know they picked up the scepter and beat him over the head with it. And then they ran out of ideas how to humiliate him. And the morning was going on, so they took the robe off of him and they marched him off Calgary and they nailed him to a cross. But honestly, as terrible as all of that is, I don't think that's why he sweated blood. Third, I don't believe it was the physical suffering related to the crucifixion, which we've touched on just, just a little bit. It was considered the crucifixion, the most painful and tortured, torturous method of execution really ever devised up until that point. It's terrible. And they, they didn't use it on everybody, although they used it on an awful lot, but it was really reserved for the most despised and the wicked people. They wanted the message to go out to the Roman Empire well, that you don't commit treason. You don't do that. And so for Christ, they crucified Him. So horrific was the pain of being crucified that they did not have a word in their language to describe it, so they made one up. And it's the word we have in our English language, excruciating, which means from the cross. It's the word that they would use. At 9 a.m., he's nailed to the cross, and the mockings continue on. The pain is just overwhelming, of course. And I actually don't believe this is why he sweated drops of blood, even as what he's going through here. To me, it's interesting that from the time he's arrested there in the garden until the time that our Lord says it is finished, we read about that, of course, in John 19.30, that Scripture records only one instance where Christ cried out loud. Now, no doubt he groaned. He probably even groaned loudly. But the gospel writers do not find it significant enough any of those groanings or moanings to record and that they only actually end up recording one instance where he cries out loud. We talk about that in Matthew 27, 46, where he actually says, it is finished. There's no evidence of him crying out loud during the arrest, the abandonment, the beatings, um, none. It's as our sinless Savior was on the cross bearing the weight of the sins of all who would ever claim him as their Savior, that he finally cries out. We read about it in Matthew 27. It's prophesied in Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, while on that cross, the very trinity of God now is fractured. It, it, there's a separation that takes place that is so unique. Jesus, who only knew the comfort of that fellowship that he had with God the Father and God the Spirit, now suffers this abandonment, if you will. It's a spiritual, dark, real abandonment. And no doubt this abandonment that he feels as he's suffering this was probably what led him in the garden to suffer, rather, to sweat drops of blood. And so, interestingly, the reason why he suffers such anguish in the garden is because of you and because of me. We're why he sweated blood. Because he knew 
the penalty that needed to be absorbed for the sins that you and I have committed would take him at being separated from God the Father. Christ is put on the cross at 9 o'clock, and at noon, darkness covers the land. It's amazing. All the jarring, all the criticism, all the mocking, the gambling for his, the clothes that he's wearing, all happens between 9 and 12, and from 12 to 3, no one talks. Nothing. There's no mocking. There's no jeering. They're absolutely overwhelmed because someone turned out the lights. And, it, and it's taken them. They don't know what's going on. It's a phenomenon in nature that no doubt occupied everybody's attention. And honestly, some people see that darkness as the fact that God then left the Savior, and I want to tell you it's completely the opposite. The darkness that took place for those three hours was not the absence of God. It was the presence of God. He was present in the darkness in full judgment, releasing the infinite punishment on the infinite Son who absorbed all of it for us. And it is here that He bears in His own body our sins. We read about it, 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. It is here who he who knew no sin was made sin for us. It's here in these three hours that our transgressions were dealt with. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the point is that to God, sin is so bad that it requires this sort of action. And Christ knew it even when he was in the garden. This is why our Savior agonized in the garden. Your, your why our Savior agonized in the garden. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the Lord, the throng I see that mock the Savior's groan, yet still my voice it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Horatio Bonner. From noon to three, there was darkness, and then at three o'clock, interestingly, the light comes back on, and the priests then in the temple, they begin to kill the Passover lambs. The timing is perfect. It always is with God, even in your own life. And they, in the midst of beginning to, to, to sacrifice these Passover lambs, they hear this unbelievable sound, and a sound perhaps they would not be able to identify had not someone checked it, but it's a tearing sound coming from inside the Holy of the Holies, it's an incredible sound. This curtain is probably six to eight inches thick. There were 13 curtains in the temple, but one was significant, far significant than the others, and it was known as the Great Barrier. It was the, the curtain that kept people out of the Holy of Holies or what they saw as out of the presence of God. They took it pretty seriously. For years, priests would go into that Holy of Holies on this day and they would have a rope tied around their ankle. Because if you did it wrong, no one wanted to go in there after them, right? If they kind of heard a thud, they know he did it wrong and they could drag him out by the rope here. They took it very seriously and they should here. But now that curtain is gone, the Holy of Holies completely exposed signifying that anybody can walk in now freely 
and experience the very presence of God. And that's what Christ gave us when he died on the cross. And I, and I think as I process this, it's amazing, Good Friday, right? We're having Good Friday today. And, and I still come back to, okay, so what? I mean, I know it's big, but what? And I want to give you three takeaways. One, I think as we process what took place during these 12 hours, we should remember that this is what saving love looks like. This is Christ loving you. This is Christ absorbing the weight of our sin that we should have absorbed, that we should absorb, and this is what it takes to pay off that debt. This is Christ loving us. And honestly, we don't accept this gift through acknowledgement. Everybody acknowledges that there was a man 2,000 years ago that died on the cross, except for the rarest and honestly craziest forms of skepticism, which do exist, but hardly anybody denies the fact that Christ died on the cross for the sins of humanity. All religions even see it to some degree. But we don't accept this love through acknowledgement. We actually accept this love through commitment, which leads me to my second point. Many will actually miss this act of love. And I want to go back to where we started in Isaiah 53.3, where Isaiah prophesied, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And Isaiah's point is actually oftentimes missed. It's missed because we get so taken up with the staggering accuracy of the prophecies that we see there in Isaiah 53. It has to be the Messiah. There have been scientific experiments related to statistical probability based on just Isaiah 53 that almost prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. It's an amazing chapter. We all know that. But actually, Isaiah didn't write it as a prophecy. He doesn't write it pointing out, here's what the Messiah will look like so that we could read it and just be marveled by it. It's actually not prophetic. It's a warning. See, his point is that the Messiah will come and many will miss him. He's actually saying here, the Messiah is going to come, here's what he looks like, and you're going to actually miss it, and it'll be actually too late. And what he's saying is, here's what people will say as they look back and they see Christ. They'll say, that was the Messiah? I only just saw this guy who was despised and rejected, not anybody that could be a king. I only saw this guy that was sorrowful, a man of sorrows. He's an acquainted with so much grief, not somebody that could be a Messiah. I only saw one is actually so pathetic that, one, that, that men would actually hide their faces from him. That's how despised he was. And then, he, and then he sums it up. Here's what else you'll do. You'll say, and we esteemed him not. Isn't it amazing? You can recognize all that Christ is doing, but actually not esteem him. You can miss it, but that doesn't have to be your testimony. You can actually go beyond acknowledging what Christ did on our behalf, especially during these 12 hours, ending up with his death on the cross. But you can commit your life to Christ, receiving what he did for you, from, uh, for you as a love gift, which actually leads me to the third point. 
what will be the reward of Christ's suffering in your life? What will be the reward of Christ's suffering in your life? Early in the 1700s, and I'll end with this, there existed a small community, and the community was called Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. It still exists in Germany today. Back then, they were an amazing community. They became part of what we know as the Moravian Church, dedicated, unbelievable Christians, but honestly, perhaps they were best known for their unparalleled missionary zeal. Amazing. This community, together, all of them, and they started out about 300, they lived, they existed to make Christ known. They actually, in 1727, started an around-the-clock prayer watch that lasted unbroken for, and you might want to sit down for this, 100 years it went unbroken. They prayed. People would sign up. I'll take 3 a.m. this week, and I got 9 a.m. the next week, and they did it for 100 years unbroken. They prayed. 65 years later after this, with that lamp of prayer still burning brightly, that little community had sent out their 300th missionary. They started with 300. In 65 years, they sent out missionaries equaling the number of people that they began with. Crazy. What is it about this community? Why are they so different here? And honestly, it's interesting. The core of their commitment can be found in the fact that they really, really loved and recognized the blood of Christ. It's related to the blood of Christ. Story goes that the founder of this community, community, he was a count. His name was, and I'm not making this up, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. After he graduated from university, he was a young man, a landowner. He took a trip through Europe, just wanting to experience Europe and all the cultural high spots that even existed back then, actually especially existed back then. And on this trip, something really unexpected happened. He was in an art museum in Dusseldorf, and he saw a painting, a really famous painting by Dominique Fetti, entitled, Behold the Man. Fetti would go on to actually paint it a few other times. It's, they're still in existence in Europe today. Behold the Man. It was a portrait of Christ with the crown of thorns on his head, blooding, blood dripping down his face. It's a powerful painting. And beneath the portrait were these words, I've done all this for you. What have you done for me? And honestly, Zizendorf, he sees that painting and it absolutely rocks his world. Right in that moment, he, he, he was a born-again believer at the time. It, it shook him to the core and he would never, ever be the same. As he stood there looking at the Savior bleed, he thought to himself, I have loved the Savior for a long time, but honestly, I don't know if I've ever done anything for him. He goes on to say, and I quote in his biography, I have loved him, but I've never done anything. And from now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And honestly, for the rest of his life, the blood of Christ had a profound impact upon Nicholas's life and the life of that community. As the story goes, when the first two missionaries leaving this community 
uh, hopped onto the boat. They're there on the shore, and they recognize that they were going into uncharted territory, and they may never return. They actually may end up dying a martyr's death. Twenty of the first 29 missionaries they sent out did, in fact, die a premature death. And they were really dedicated to making Christ known in what was then the West Indies, what now we know as the U.S. Virgin Islands, amazing. They stood on that boat, these two missionaries, and they say, and I'm quoting Zinzendorf now, they lifted up their hands, he says, and they say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of our suffering. What then will be the reward of Christ's payment on your behalf? What then will you do for Christ? We don't do anything to earn his favor. We already have the favor. It's because we have his favor that we want to give him a reward for it. And so honestly, it's a genuine question, although I'd ask you not to speak out loud. What will be his reward from you? How then will you live? What will you do? What should you do? May I give you a great place to start? Because he bled for you. Because he serves as the atonement for you. You should in turn live a redeemed life. And that is not a normal life. You should go home and act before your wife like a redeemed man. And before your kids. You should like sound and look and act and speak like you're redeemed. And that would be a great reward for his suffering on your behalf. You should go to work tomorrow. And people should recognize that you're different. You're not normal. You're redeemed. You live redeemed. You speak redeemed. You think redeemed. Because, and I hope you are, you are redeemed. And that would be a great reward. Father, thank you for your word. Honestly, the weightiness of this topic is sobering, and maybe it should be, as we ponder our Lord in agony on our behalf, knowing that he would actually be our atonement. I thank you that you included this text. We need it, Father. And I pray that it would cause us to want to lead a redeemed life. And honestly, occasionally, remind us to ask the question, what will be your son's reward from us? Would it cause us to act, to move, and certainly to love you, love your son, more because of our pondering it? I thank you for this church. What a joy it is for Sue and I to come and see this church active in your mission, wanting to love people here in Huntington Beach, around the corner and around the world, and just being so diligent about it. What a joy that is for us to see. Would you take this offering and help them to continue to do exactly that, to further and strengthen your future kingdom? Lord, I pray you'd bring that kingdom right away. Pray you'd come for us. We're ready. We're ready for you. We pray this because of your son. Amen.